the mission to the top requires this much effort. And if you don't do it, you won't make it to the top. As you perform better, you're rewarded better. As you work harder, you progress faster. No human being can sustain that level of energy. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, where we discuss how to reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share his story of going from a corporate lawyer to a workplace well-being consultant. We'll discuss the dangerous side of work hustle culture and the hidden costs of relentlessly climbing the corporate ladder. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll discuss the importance of considering not only the current state of your career, but more critically, the direction your career's headed. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Kia, who transformed his legal career from a troubling low point where he was really struggling mentally as a practicing lawyer in London, to now living a much happier, fulfilling career in life. Now, if you're like me, your stereotypical image of lawyers may involve fast-track professionals and slick suits working at a high-rise office in a big city, working with high-profile clients, earning lots of money, the kind of stuff you might see on TV. And Tom's career in a law firm kind of started like this. He lived and breathed the life of a high-flying lawyer in central London, earning a high salary with big bonuses, and in many ways, he felt like he was at the top of his game. But the pressure of being a high-performing lawyer began to whittle away at his mental and physical well-being. As he described it to me, he lost his health, his purpose, and self-worth by ruthlessly trying to succeed in an intense industry. After eventually suffering a complete mental breakdown, he took a year-long career break and decided to stop practicing law entirely. He eventually transitioned into a leadership role at both his London and Dubai law firms and now works with companies to monitor the health and happiness of their employees. He's also founded a corporate well-being consultancy and employee well-being platform called SoulTech to work with business leaders to manage and improve employee well-being, happiness, and retention. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to get Tom onto the show is because he's going to provide a glimpse into the somewhat dark side of doing whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder, to keep up with your peers, and to constantly hustle to get ahead in your career. Tom's gonna get into some pretty personal details about the vicious and dangerous spiral he ended up in that involved drugs, alcohol, and pushing his body and life to the point of total collapse. He's also gonna shed light on the realities of corporate life in a big city and what he did to rescue himself from what became an unhealthy downward spiral. I should also say that I typically connect with most of the guests on this show remotely, and I rarely get a chance to meet any of them face-to-face, which is kind of a shame. But I did get a chance to meet Tom last month when he kindly invited me to join him and his colleagues for his company's annual party in London shortly after we recorded this discussion. And I've got to say, aside from having an interesting career story, he's also just a really nice guy and a pro at introducing people to one another at an event, which I find to be a rare but impressive quality for someone to have. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 91. Tom spoke with me from Dubai. Okay, Tom, welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It is fantastic to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Let's start off before we dive into your 
career as a lawyer and now your focus on workplace well-being. Let's talk a little bit about what you're focused on right now in your career and your life. What is keeping you busy? First of all, thank you so much, Joseph, for inviting me on your podcast. I'm very excited to share my experience with as many people as I can. So presently, right now, I'm working on a corporate well-being platform, as well as doing business development for a lot of professional services firms out here. So fundamentally, what I do is I go to businesses and I carry out surveys of their staff, not necessarily to teach them about stress or anxiety or anything like that, the sort of usual stuff that people do to tick a box, but rather to provide CEOs with a proper map of where their staff index is as at a given time. And we do two types of surveys. The first one is, of course, one about the building, how people are feeling about being in the building. And the second one is their mental health and how they're feeling. Separate to that and similar side, I work at Rothberg LLC, which is a professional services firm in Dubai. They do a lot of company formations in Dubai, as well as just general advice for companies and families that are here. So I do a lot of business development for them. Very interesting. And it sounds like this well-being topic is extremely top of mind right now, especially post-pandemic. I guess we're currently still in the pandemic, but I know in most of the surveys I'm looking at, because I focus on career change, a lot of people are starting to look much more at emotional and physical well-being in the workplace. So it sounds like you are in the right space at this moment in time. Could I also ask, Tom, just a little bit about your personal background? I know you mentioned you're in Dubai right now. Where are you from and where do you spend your time these days? So I was raised in the UK. I'm ethnically Persian, but most of the time I'm between the two countries. I'm in Dubai a lot longer than the UK, but I try and get to the UK at least one or two months a year just to you know, carry on with what I'm doing in terms of mental health. And it's very interesting. You said that uh, mental health is really in these days. You know, I've been probably suffering from this for uh -huh. a good 15 we years. We're going to talk about that. Exactly. And for the first five years, I've dedicated my life to it. So it was good to catch it right before the pandemic. And I think a lot of people these days are focused on mental health and well-being for two reasons. One, because of the pandemic and everything that arose from there, but also because working from home has now made employers compete with the comfort of someone's home. It'll be interesting to see and both explore in this conversation. Let's do this, Tom. Why don't we first of all go back and talk about your former career as a corporate lawyer? Because I know you haven't always been professionally focused on workplace well-being, but I know that you also dealt with some issues personally as you were going through your own career journey. But why don't we first of all just start with your career history? And could you just tell me about your time as a corporate lawyer? And then we'll move forward from there. There are two types of lawyers in the world. There are those that want to succeed in life and enter the city and play with the big boys, let's say. And there are those who seek justice for people. I was probably the former rather than latter. Um, my father died when I was very, very young. So financial security was very, very big on my mind. So I entered the city. I worked at a very good city law firm for, I'd say, around 12 years, give or take. I worked at the highest level in the sense that I worked through extremely long hours to become a partner in that business and lead uh, effectively a subdivision focusing on basically fundamentally banks and family offices. What kind of hours are we talking about here when you say you're working pretty hard? Can you just describe like how many days a week, how many hours a day are we talking? If you want to succeed as a lawyer, you have to treat it like a lifestyle. It's sort of 
impossible to treat it as a job. If you want to work nine to five, law is definitely not the job for you. So give or take, 5 a.m. till about 10.30 p.m. was were my hours, give or take. Wow. We worked different time zones. You know, I certainly had to get up quite early for my Middle Eastern clients. And then you basically work throughout the day, pretty much nonstop. Wow. Okay. And this is five days a week, six days a week? Five days a week, definitely. And then over the weekend, you'd probably spend four or five hours either doing business development, meeting some of the clients who can only meet you on the weekend, or more likely catching up on work <laughs> to make your Monday morning just a little bit gentler. Rightly or wrongly, I guess my perception of the world of law is driven by A, my direct experience working with lawyers, maybe related to my business or maybe if I'm buying a house, but probably more often than not, just kind of what I see on TV. And that, that may not be fair, but, you know, law and order, suits, like how much do you feel, though, obviously it's not an accurate representation of the real world, but what were your perceptions going into law versus your direct experience as a lawyer? Your perception when you want to enter the legal career is that you're going to be surrounded by very, very intelligent people. You're going to be surrounded by academics and you know, you're going to be given these big, complex problems to solve and deals to close and cases to litigate and all of these wonderful things that rightly, like, like yourself, you see on TV. The reality of it is markedly different in the sense that and this is right across all law firms. So I'm not particularly picking on one firm or the other. I'm specifically choosing the general market is that you're going to be dealing with a lot of people who have a lot of personal baggage. Uh, you're going to be dealing with a lot of people who, because their identity is so surrounded by law, that by being, say, for example, a senior person within the team, they effectively treat it like a feudal kingdom. And also, there's a lot of just paper pushing. You know, as a junior lawyer, you don't do anything interesting right up until probably about three years qualified. Until then, you're either bundling papers or filling out forms or taking notes. <laughs> okay. You'll be lucky to get the letter in and out of there. So, you know, your image that I'm going to walk in, they're going to give me all this stuff, very quickly crushed when someone says there's 60 boxes in there. I need you to review every single one of them and hopefully find one document that I'm looking for, which always ends up being on the 65th box right towards the end. And, okay. you know, you take your tie off, you pull up your sleeves, and literally you're in a basement <laughs> looking through these dirty, <laughs> disgusting files. Of course, that gives away my age. I think a lot of things are done electronically, but the principle is the same. I'm trying to just imagine you in the basement doing this, as you described, paper pushing. What was running through your head at that moment when you started to realize that this was your reality? Did you start to think about doing something else or did you continue to push forward? What was your MO at the time? One of the common things lawyers face is imposter syndrome because you sort of think I'm not good enough for this job. Certainly when you're reviewing those boxes, you don't feel imposter syndrome. <laughs> <You're an idiot. laughs> I, can I can handle this. <laughs> I think the shock that enters the mind isn't so much about the work you're doing. Now, you could be very lucky and end up working for a nice person within the team, okay? So you, as a junior lawyer, could walk in and there's a super nice guy. He's like, look, dude, I'm really sorry to put you through this, but 60 boxes for you to review. Trust me, we'll go for a beer on Friday. I'll make it up to you, but I really need you to pay very close attention. Of course, you do need to pay close attention. Law is a very hazardous job. You miss that document. Your client could lose a multi-million pound case, so you end up really, really giving your all at a tedious task. But in my case, for example, I was quite unlucky in the sense that I ended up working with 
not so pleasant people. There was one person who was awesome that I worked with, but you're told probably in very demeaning ways to do your job. You're treated very, very harshly. And it's that that makes you reconsider whether you want to do this. Because when you speak to other trainees at other law firms, they're like, oh yeah, there's this guy, he's so horrible. He threw a stapler at me. You know, and you're like, wow, compared to him, I've got it pretty good. But if this is the best out of all my friends, do I really want to do this? But the financial security point that I mentioned earlier really requires one to sort of step in and just take it. Now, before we talk about what impact all this had on you mentally and physically, I did have one question that you alluded to when we first spoke, which was a dynamic that I think exists in many corporate environments, which is that unless you're at the top of the food chain in an organization, you're investing a lot of energy to try to get to the top. Could you describe what your experience was in not only climbing the corporate ladder, but wanting to climb the corporate ladder within a law firm? Basically, top of the food chain is exactly the only place you'll feel comfortable. Of course, that's when imposter syndrome kicks in. But if you want to play it very rough, you would be doing the backstabby way of, you know, I'm going to try and bury this guy. So in comparison, I look better. I always do this analysis where I say, look, envy is when you look at someone and you want to be like them or better. Jealousy is when you look at someone and you basically say, oh my God, I want to take him down because I'm never going to be as good as that person. Most lawyers tend to be envious, not jealous. So there isn't that much backstabbing really going on. But what you do is you effectively backstab yourself in the sense that you know that, look, if I want to get to the next stage, I won't do it as nine to five. So I need to be at eight till six. And you get in at eight and see a whole bunch of people who've been there already for two hours. You know, they're uh, two hours wow. ahead of you. You've come in an hour early. <laughs> so you're like, you know what? I need to come in three hours early. <laughs> and it's not so much they're deliberately trying to take you down or anything. Nothing like that is happening. It's just they're saying, look, the mission to the top requires this much effort. And if you don't do it, you won't make it to the top. And this happened with me towards some of my cohorts in the sense that I went past a lot of people that were probably two or three years ahead of me when I first started. So the rewards are visible. As you perform better, you're rewarded better. As you work harder, you progress faster. There is no lie in that in any, any law firm, unless you work for a very, very small law firm where there's only one partner. As I'm hearing this, Tom, what I'm envisioning in my mind is a super stressful environment. And I'm also feeling this real need to achieve and excel and accelerate in your career. I'd like to shift gears here now and talk a little bit about the personal impact this had on you and how you dealt with this personally. When I'm thinking about the pace of law as you're describing it, can you explain to me beyond the work itself, what were some of the steps that you took to just maintain that pace? No human being can sustain that level of energy. It doesn't really happen. The way it starts normally is for your early 20s, you can keep up. For your early 20s, generally speaking, what you do is you throw yourself into the fire and you've got a lot of capacity. You smash it out. And on Fridays, because you haven't done anything all week, because you've just been working or trying to do business development in the evenings, certainly within the British culture, the only way forward is Friday drinks. And that's something I celebrate. I still do every now and again. It's great fun. Go to the pub, get a couple of drinks, then a couple more drinks, then a couple more drinks. Of course, what then happens is you wake up on Saturday feeling rough. And as you get older, that waking up on Saturday gets worse and worse and worse. And to be able to keep up at this pace, you don't necessarily within that environment realize that you have developed a mental health problem. 
in the form of OCDs, addictions, etc. You know, you wake up one day and you're like, look, I just can't physically get out of bed. Oh, it might be too many drinks last night. And eventually at some point somewhere, someone says, look, you know something, you know that guy down the corridor who's keeping up with you, you know, he's actually on drugs. He's either taking Ritalin or whatever. And that's why he's going up. You're trying to compete organically against someone so synthetic. It starts with having one coffee. And that's why I sort of discourage people drinking coffee because that's how it all starts. That's with having one coffee to eight cups a day. Then it goes from eight cups won't do it. So then you start entertaining other things. I'm not saying that happens to everyone, but what I'm saying is when you're exhausted and drinking tea or coffee is not keeping you awake, you then eventually turn to drugs. And I'm talking obviously very serious drugs here. And it comes to a Friday where you're just completely drained. You can't physically lift yourself. Your friends are all like, Tom, let's go out for a couple of drinks. And you're like, I just can't do it. And of course, what then happens is someone gives you something and suddenly, yep, on it, let's go have fun. And what you're basically doing here is you're replacing happiness with fun. You equate fun being happiness. So, you know, you're like, as long as I'm out on Friday until 4 a.m. in the morning, that means I'm enjoying my youth. That's what you basically start to think. And the next thing you know, that becomes almost habitual. It becomes a thing that, look, I can push it to the nth degree but I know I've got something that can help me push it even further. And that's exactly where it goes wrong. That's exactly when you're like, I'm unstoppable, I'm immortal, <laughs> I'm doing all these wonderful things. And actually, what you don't realize is you're opening yourself up to effectively hell. Drugs and alcohol are a huge part of the city. And I think anyone who doesn't talk about this openly is doing disservice. They're not raising awareness of what is actually going on on the ground. And that's just a fact. And just to get specific here, what kind of drugs are we talking about here and how long were you on these drugs for? For two years, I was probably um, experimenting with different drugs before I had a complete categorical breakdown. What are we talking cocaine? Are we talking... Um... This is a typical example. For example, you decide that you want to go away for the weekend. And the way it really works is you work, you beast it right until Friday evening. Okay, And now you decide to take a flight to Ibiza to party with your friends. Because as I said earlier, what you're doing is you're equating fun with happiness. You're basically saying, as long as I'm partying, I'm happy. You're not saying happiness with everything around me. Sort of like trying to run away. Sort of like trying to escape the reality of what you're facing. So in that regard, you basically say, great, to seek this unbelievable happiness, I am going to stay awake. So you land in Ibiza and the first thing someone does is gives you some coke. You take that, that helps you stabilize. And now you're going to the party where everyone's just drinking MDMA. And with me, it sort of started accidentally. I went to Ibiza with a bunch of guys and I didn't know what was going on. And one of them gave me a bottle of water and I drank it and I was able to keep up for the entire two days. And then someone said, by the way, the water you drank was actually drugs. It was MDMA. Okay, Tom. So at the risk of coming across as a bit naive and sounding like I've lived in a bubble my whole life, as someone myself who has never used illicit drugs or been around illicit drugs or even seen that many drugs in my life, could you give me a sense of exactly how pervasive drug usage was amongst the people around you? Do a sample test of anyone working in the city, anyone. And out of 100 people, he would take 80 would test positive. Wow. I would be surprised if it's less, there are a lot of people I know who don't, of course, but 
at any given time, 80% of the people working in the city within sort of the square mile or Wall Street will be on something for sure. Because you could receive an email now at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. By 8.15, you got a WhatsApp from a client saying, hey, did you receive my email? By 9.15, they expect a draft back. By 11, you send it to the other side. By 3, they send the response back. I mean, how do you keep up with that pace? It's incredibly quick, yeah. And you sacrifice. Obviously, you don't want to be high while you're working. But I'll touch on what happens when you take drugs a bit later. If you're high while you're working, then you're going to be making some bad decisions. But what basically happens is, you know, you've partied very hard on the weekend. And now you're feeling the pain because what drugs do is they take you up and then you come crashing down. And what you're dealing with now at this stage is the calm down. It's the anxiety, the depression and everything that's come with it. Put on top of that, the stress and the pressures of the working environment, the bad boss who wants to screw you, know, who comes to the office drunk at lunchtime, screaming at everyone. So what you then do is you turn to your doctor for some sort of mental health medication, right? That will basically be something like Xanax in order to calm you down so you don't have a panic attack within your working environment. Mixing Xanax with alcohol and drugs means that you're basically going down to this spiral where you're going to end up making some huge mistakes or something wrong going. But while you're in that mindset, while you're in that mood, all you want to do is get rid of the heart palpitation. You don't think about the impact this is going to have on your decision-making skills. And come what may, on Friday, you're still getting the calls from your colleagues saying, let's go for a couple of drinks. We got to have a couple of drinks, but we got to close this. Or Tom, I'm really sorry that I screamed at you. I'll make it up to you over a couple of drinks. So you see, it creates its own environment. Given the fact that it sounds like this behavior is quite normalized and quite common and acceptable in the industry, at what point did you realize that something had to change for you? I think it all happened around five years ago. And if I genuinely told you, I can't remember a lot of what happened five years ago during that nearly a whole year. But basically, I think I tried to resign twice. I made like a couple of mistakes and I tried to resign. And at the time, my workplace, you know, I was billing them, you know, millions a year. They were making a lot of money for me, so they didn't really care. And I was dissuaded from resigning. And then I think I made a pretty major mistake. I mean, my cognitive ability was awful. And in global... Related to a client, related to it was, a project. It was more like an internal mistake. But in law, the biggest fear you have is not necessarily your boss, nor is it the client, it's the regulators, because the regulators are very aggressive. And just now they're beginning to get a grip of the mental health pandemic that's happening in, within the legal profession very recently now. And this should have been handled maybe 15, 20 years ago, but I'm glad they're getting a grip of it. But you know, as soon as someone says, I'm going to make a complaint against you, that's your entire career at that person's disposal. The biggest fear is the regulator. And I made a mistake. It was a regulatory error for sure. And as soon as it landed, and the firm realized, okay, well, now this could be an us issue rather than just him issue. They basically wrote me a letter saying, look, you know, Tom, this is a serious mistake. I resigned very shortly after that. But what happened was in my mind, I had 12 years of my life I've given to these guys, made them so much money and got very little reward, if I may say, financially out of it. Career-wise, definitely right to the top. Financially, not so much. And then when I needed them most, they chewed me out and spat me out. Okay, so 
that was basically the punch I saw not coming out anywhere because I thought to myself, no matter what happens, these guys are going to back me. They're going to be like, Tom, we've got you. Don't you worry about it. You've made some mistakes. Let's meet up, fix it, and then figure out what we're going to do with you after. Instead, it was like, you're on your own. Good luck. And I had a complete nervous breakdown. Now, when we say complete nervous breakdown, a lot of people think, oh, I was a little bit stressed. I couldn't get out. No, I couldn't get out of bed for a month. For a full month, I was flat on the ground. So I lost 11 kilos pretty much straight away. I almost became half the man I was before. And that's when at last I went into therapy and, you know, they diagnosed me with every single thing that I thought was perfectly normal. You know, I was touching wood maybe 50 times a day thinking that's normal. I couldn't uh, look at red post boxes. I thought, oh, that I'm just scared about them. OCD, like, what are you <laughs> what are you scared about? You know, waking up in the morning with my heart racing, needing Xanax to calm it down. That's not normal. You're a guy in your 20s. You should not wake up with, you know, heart palpitations. You should not just be able to sleep four hours. You should not need drugs to party. You should not this and that. And suddenly you begin to realize, actually, everything I've done, you know, at least for the past seven years of my life has been completely wrong. And that's when I really woke up to it. That's when I was like, okay, well, this was a mistake. Let's see what's left of my life. Let me see what pieces I can pick up and then figure out what I'm going to do next. So you're describing what I often hear from people may not be to this extreme, but there is a point where you hit rock bottom in your career and your life, and it forces you to then wake up, come up for air and figure out what you want to do next. How did you go about figuring that out? The first thing was that I needed to close off whatever happened with my former workplace and get closure on it. So therapy was the first thing. And I and I say to people, look, sports and therapy. Sports, because your body and mind are connected. Therapy, because your body and mind are connected. So when you go to therapy, you're basically training your mind. You're making it stronger. Now, some people like to do meditation. Phenomenal. No one on earth is going to tell you meditation doesn't help. Plenty of studies have proved it. Buddhists have been doing it for thousands of years with wonderful effects. In fact, a lot of stuff you learn in therapy are about mindfulness, which has been, you know, in the Buddhist culture for thousands of years. So first it was, let me just lift myself physically up and be able to be active again, which I did through therapy. How quickly were you able to get off of the drugs that were causing these highs and lows? Right. So the drugs were instant because when I went to my psychiatrist, he basically turned around and said, there's absolutely no way I'm treating you if you're involved in any of this stuff. You can't touch this. This is going to kill you. I thought that it was the drugs that made me make the mistakes that I did. And then my psychiatrist and I figured out, actually, no, the pressures in the work environment drove me to such a corner, alongside with my own personal ambition. I'm not saying that you go into the work environment and someone says you have to kill yourself. No, your personal ambition is a big part of what drives you where I needed a synthetic push. I needed something synthetic to sort of drive me forward. So he said, look, I'm going to have to put you on actual mental health medication just so I can reach into you and figure out what's going on in there. Because right now there's just too many panic attacks happening. And if anyone's had a panic attack, it's, it's something that a lot of people just throw around. Oh my God, I just had a panic attack. In reality, a panic attack is this sort of feeling where you're basically assuming you're in the worst possible place imaginable. So in my situation, I thought that someone's going to come and take me away and lock me up somewhere. That was on my mind the entire time. And then I was put on mental health medication that allowed me to sort of lift myself up again through therapy. Then the challenge was now that you're on mental health medication, we need to get you off it now. And that's another journey of its own. So between my mental breakdown and me being able to get back up, 
I'd say there was probably about six months of work that was needed. It was like, okay, well, look, I'm back. What's left of my life? What have I got around me? And that's when, you know, the old saying, the traditional saying, oh, yes, I know who my uh, best friends are now. I know who's my family, the value of family, et cetera, et cetera. I was very lucky enough with an amazing network and a wonderful family that I was like, okay, well, let's give this another go. So it sounds like the therapy was helpful, time was helpful, just stepping back away from that high-pressured environment was useful. Was there anything that ultimately tipped the scales and opened your eyes to the idea of then helping set up law firms, helping with business development? How did that open up for you? The thing that comes to mind is that this was entirely avoidable. I realized, again, in therapy, that I could have quit a lot earlier worked in a much better environment or created a better environment and not had to suffer the way I suffered. It's that that drove me. The fact that everything I've been through was perfectly avoidable with the right advice and the right guidance. Now, I'm not saying speaking to 22-year-old Tom, you could have persuaded him to work less. I don't think so, and nor should you. But I think with the right advice, you could persuade people to know the limits before they basically have the breakdown, to catch the signs early before things really, really, really mess up effectively. So I think when I woke up after six months, I came to fundamentally, I realized, look, none of this needed to happen. Okay, well, how do I now give back? How do I make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else? By the way, during this period, I was that alpha guy. I was the guy that was like, look, who needs therapy? You know, get a couple of drinks, we'll be fine. And suddenly I realized, one, the world didn't end by me not practicing law. It seems as though all the clients are fine. Two, my friends don't like me less, <laughs> you know, by me not being, you know, at a large city law firm. My friends still like me for me. My family's still proud of me. When you realize that, you're like, okay, well, then great. I can do other things. I can do wonderful things that doesn't necessarily need this much pressure. Before we talk about some of the lessons you've learned along the way, can you now tell me a little bit more about the work that you ended up deciding to pursue. And I suppose I'm especially interested in understanding how you knew that you were going to be good at this and how you knew that this was going to be the right path for you. I'd say to anyone looking for a career transition, you'll never know. So don't look around looking for something you're absolutely quite categorically confident in. There are ways to ease yourself into it. So for me, one of my friends was setting up a law firm So I went to him and I said, look, let me do the foundational elements. Let me try and help you avoid your firm fundamentally having something wrong with it by having people who could have mental health problems. And, you know, I started handing out, really researching, finding out, look, businesses are losing 25% of their productivity thanks to people who are suffering mentally. You know, you can bring in McKinsey or PwC, BCG even to try and increase productivity by 25%. Or you can actually look after your stuff, <laughs> which will cost uh, like uh-huh. and give you much more staff loyalty. So I started almost uh, the experiment that happened with Barclay Row when you know I went in at the very foundational level. And I was like, look, I don't want to practice law. I'll do the business development elements. But fundamentally, I want to be there for the staff. I want to talk to them about my experience. I want to make sure that we hire ambitious people so I can tell them how to use their ambition. And... I would do that with the help of a therapist. So, you know, on the mental health side, they'll come in because I know, you know, I know a lot about mental health in the workplace, but I'm not a mental health expert. 
So I brought in the experts. I brought in the psychiatrists, the psychologists, the CBT specialists. And we started working on the stuff. And the result was completely remarkable. You know, when people were suffering during COVID, Barclay Rose profitability went up by 200%, something ridiculous. Um, and that's because the people were trained to handle tough situations. It wasn't a stress management course where when you get stressed, try, you know, allocating the top priority to the lower priority. Because I was so in it and I knew all this, you know, mistakes that one could make, I would teach them to manage clients. I would teach them to manage their colleagues and I would teach them to say no. Well, that's a very interesting transition, Tom. And the last thing I was hoping to talk about before we wrap up with the mental health platform that you've recently launched, which I do want to come back to at the end. I am very curious to hear about some of the things you've learned along the way of your very interesting career change journey. And the first question I have for you is just what you've learned about yourself along the way. The best thing I learned was that you can't heal in the environment you got sick in. But that's why I love your podcast, because it's about career change. It's not about job change. And a lot of people, I suppose, think that, look, I hated working in this place, but if I move to that place, I'll be better. If you really love your work, you'll never work again. If you really, really, really love your work, even in high-pressured environments, you can sort of find a way or you can find a stable route. But when you're reaching breakdown level, that's not a healthy environment for you. You need to get out as quickly as you possibly can. So the thing I learned was it's a scary path to go down. Humans are animals of habit. You know what to do. You've been trained how to do it. You're older now. Oh my God, how am I going to deal with the age difference? Am I going to earn less, et cetera? And I would tell people, look, what's the trade-off? We know that stress causes the worst possible health problems. We know that. We know that for a fact. So do you want to have this poison in you just for the sake of money? And I promise you, you spend all that money trying to treat yourself after. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what I learned was the pursuit of happiness is much more of a fun and adventurous journey than the pursuit of wealth. The weirdest thing is, as soon as you do that, you start making more money. For sure. Without a fail. Yeah, that's really interesting, Tom, because something you mentioned there about getting out of the environment that caused you to be sick, one of the questions that comes up a lot in the line of work that I do is from people who have this belief, and I suppose this is fueled by just common wisdom, that it's much easier to find your next job when you're currently employed than it is if you resign from your job that you don't like, and then you're unemployed, then you try to find a job. What's your perspective on that? And I suppose I'm most interested in trying to get a sense of whether you felt like you could have healed if you just kept the stable full-time job while you're trying to figure out what to do next. Each person's different, right? I had the luxury of not having a wife and kids. So, you know, I could almost afford, in quotes, to move back into my mom's place and figure out the next step. I think, as with anything in life, imagine you're removing a plaster from your injured finger, right? Pull it. There is no point doing it slowly. You're just making the thing lost. And I think the best way to relaunch your career, the best way to change is to put yourself in a very, very difficult spot. And that is quit your job. Now you have no other option but to move. That environment has been sick. That environment has made you want to go. No money's worth it. No one can pay me genuinely anything to go back into that environment ever again. <laughs> I would say do it instantly. Don't wait. Forget anxiety. Brilliant things happen when you're stressed. Your creativity levels go up. Your thinking becomes sharper. Your mind becomes a lot more agile. And I come across a lot of young people who are like, I've got this full-time job. I'm working on the startup on the side. I say to them, look, you're in your early 20s. 
work on the startup, quit it, make that startup your only way out. And trust me, it'll be a success. But if you're trying to put one foot in and the other foot out, you're never ever going to leap. You're going to pivot, but never leap. What's something that you wished people knew about climbing the corporate ladder that you now know? I started literally at the time when throwing staplers around the office was becoming taboo just at the beginning. So I still had a couple of staplers being thrown at me. I still had a couple of folders being thrown at me. I was well within that era where they could scream at you to the top of their lung and you just have to sit there and take it. I don't know whether that still exists. I haven't worked in that environment that much anymore. The simple ability to not take that. I wish I knew at the beginning that just being completely loyal is not the answer. You work at a place for four years, you get everything you want out of it. Now, if that environment is no longer healthy for you, experiment with a new one. You lose nothing as a result. You literally lose nothing if you just leave. And for me, I chose stability and loyalty over happiness and a little bit of risk. And a final question for you. You alluded to your 22-year-old Tom before. And I was curious what you would tell him now about making a career change. 22-year-old Tom was an unstoppable beast. <laughs> I got, I got uh-huh. To conquer the world, you want to become super rich, you want to have this, this and that. And the beautiful thing about a career change is that your ambitions never really die. You don't have to completely you know, kill yourself and become dull and some sort of middle manager somewhere stuck. I would tell 22-year-old Tom, work for five years, and set up your own business. That's what I would say. Because I was very entrepreneurial. I'm still entrepreneurial, but I was raised within an environment where you're told that the best possible outcome is being employed. I would say, no, if you're entrepreneurial, have a go at it yourself. Trust me, you'll find amazing things once you start working for yourself. And I would tell them, Jesus Christ, look after your mental health. I mean, if there was a me when I was young and someone like me came to our office and he said, guys, This is how you avoid regulatory pitfalls. This is how you avoid having problems in your job. And the answer to that simply is look after your mental health. I'm not saying organize your documents adequately. I'm not saying prioritize this and that. I'm saying, are you waking up with a heart palpitation? Yes, I am. Not good. Okay, resign. Period. Aggressively so. Are you having only four hours of sleep and you're stressed when you go to bed and you're stressed when you're waking up consistently over a month? Because sometimes just jobs are stressful. You're going to be stressed for a month. That's fine. But if it's consistent, quit. Quit straight away. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to do something stupid. Can you tell me that you can't remember what happened last month in your 20s? Yeah. Okay, quit. When I go into businesses, I just tell the staff what's not normal. And the weirdest thing is seeing these eyes just open when I'm talking about very broadly my experiences. Suddenly you see stars in some of these people's eyes because they're like, oh my God, I do that. Oh my goodness, I do that. I've had so many people come to me saying, Tom, I think I've got OCD. <laughs> and you know, I'm like, what do you do? He was like, well, to make sure that the email doesn't come back bad from the client, I count to seven. And usually it works out well because seven's a lucky number. I'm like, but <laughs> that's not normal. <laughs> or, or, you know, there has been times genuinely where I've done these talks and the person who asked me to do the talk took me to one side and said, Tom, maybe not say these things because, you know, at one point I have to discipline my staff. And I said to him, well, look, if you're disciplining them the way I'm saying you are, well, you need to change. And I see engagement from management and staff. A lot of people are understanding that being the boss doesn't make you king and being an employee doesn't make you a peasant. We're all in this together. So how can we get the best out of each other? 
Well, I'd love to wrap up, Tom, with what you are also focused on right now. I understand you have recently launched a mental health platform, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about Soltech. So the way Soltech works, I go in and do talks for businesses about their mental health. And what we've done is we've plugged Soltech in, which is a survey once a month, every Monday morning, because usually people feel at their worst on a Monday morning. And after about six months, we produced this map to CEOs where we basically show them where their staff mental health is and has been for the past six months and also how the staff are interacting with the building. So in an environment where people are sort of beginning to either really take on working from home or struggle with bringing people to the office, we give them an idea of where the staff are. And it's great because to see how people are feeling and that we have to action that before it's too late. I am looking forward to hearing how that platform evolves. And I just wanted to thank you so much, Tom, for giving us a candid glimpse into your former life as a lawyer and how that has now evolved into your focus on well-being and the importance of pursuing happiness over everything else. So thanks again for your time and best of luck with your work as a well-being consultant. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you for what you're doing, because I think it creates uh, hope for a lot of people, especially a lot of lawyers think there is no life outside of law. A podcast like yours shows everyone in every profession there is a wonderful life outside of what they're doing. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Tom's perspectives on the negative impact hustle culture can have on your career and life, the importance of watching out for your own mental health, and the benefits of taking a brave leap that initially feels really scary. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about how I think through where I want my career to head in the upcoming months and years ahead. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to thank Grammarly for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Built by linguists and language lovers, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors so you don't have to. And as a Career Relaunch listener, you can download Grammarly for free by going to getgrammarly.com relaunch. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Tom mentioned about paying attention to where your career is headed and taking action before things devolve to a point where they're debilitating. And since this episode's airing on one of the last days of the year, and you may be thinking about New Year's resolutions and what you want for your life and your career in the year ahead. I thought I'd share how I take stock of my own career situation and three ways I consider taking the various aspects of my work life forward into the year ahead. Now, if you're like me and you consider yourself a rather goal-oriented individual, if you consider yourself someone who not only works hard, but also just keeps working harder and harder until you achieve what you want to achieve, if you pride yourself in being able to stick things out until the job is done, well, I commend you for that. At the same time, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes I have moments where I'm so focused on achievement and finishing what I started and I've got my head down, trying to stay on top of everything at work, not to mention the rest of my life. And when I'm in this uber task mode, I sometimes forget to look up and take stock of not only how things are going, but more importantly, as Tom alluded to, where things are heading in my life and career. And both are important to consider 
It's important to take a measurement of where things currently stand, but it's also important, perhaps even more important, to think about your forward trajectory, the trend line of where things are heading for you. So for me, at the end of each year, I try to take a quick mental inventory of how I'm feeling across the various domains of my professional life, most important to me. And I try to focus on the top three criteria because you can't have everything in your career. Right now, my priorities are, number one, to do work I find meaningful, which means having an impact, doing work I enjoy, where I feel like I'm able to make the most of my strengths, interests, and skills. Number two, to operate in a way that's sustainable, which includes work pace, client volume, my own bandwidth, and of course, finances. And finally, to have space for the people in my life, where my professional life's structured in a way that enables me to spend time with the people I care most about. Then, to ensure I'm able to honor these priorities, I try to decide on one of three approaches to take with different parts of my work. Refraining, maintaining, or obtaining. Refraining involves pulling back from, avoiding, or discontinuing. Maintaining involves sustaining, continuing, or perhaps evolving. And obtaining involves building, investing into, or acquiring. So just to give some concrete examples here, when I think about the past year of my work, overall, things could have been better, things could have been worse, but they've been going reasonably well, which I feel very grateful for. But one of my struggles has been keeping up with the volume of work. I've given something like 90 talks, webinars, and workshops over the past three months which is good and bad. It's good to have a steady stream of work, but it's meant I've had less free time than I've wanted for the people in my life. Therefore, looking ahead to the next year, I've decided to refrain from taking on any more individual clients due to my capacity and bandwidth. I've decided to maintain the workshops and webinars I deliver at business schools and corporate clients. And I've decided I need to obtain more of an online presence by expanding my existing e-course offering, something I invested into five years ago before our daughter was born, but just haven't touched since. In the months ahead, creating more online courses is one thing I'd like to try to do more of because it could help open up a bit of space in my life. Anyway, that's me. Now, whether you call it refrain, maintain, and obtain, or start, stop, continue, or red light, yellow light, green light, I recommend you reflect on where your career is headed if you just remained on the exact same path you're on and didn't recalibrate in any way. If you're not happy with where things are headed, think about where you do and don't want to invest your time so you can shift your career in a direction that suits you and honors your priorities. Don't just settle for the status quo. This takes me to a quote from the lawyer Marvin Amori. Default choices often remain unchanged for no reason other than being the default. As you think ahead to the next year, my challenge to you is twofold. First, pinpoint which three things are most important for you to have during the next year of your career. I mentioned meaning, sustainability, and space. 
But for you, maybe you have other metrics like personal growth, leveraging your strengths, working for an organization aligned with your values, solid relationships, whatever your priorities are, name them. Then think about how you want things to look across these priorities exactly one year from now. How would you like things to be? What would you like to be feeling? Where would you like to be spending more of your time? Decide which things you want to refrain from pursuing, to simply maintain as is, or to proactively obtain. Then shape your efforts and actions accordingly. If you have a question about career change you want me to address on the show, or if you have a story of career change yourself you would like to share with others, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 91. Listeners like you are often the exact people who have the most relatable stories to share with others in our community. You can also find a summary of my discussion with Tom and learn more about his firm, Ruthberg LLC, and the work he's doing to improve well-being in the workplace on that same page at careerrelaunch.net slash 91. On a final note, I hope that 2022 has wrapped up nicely for you, that you've had a chance to take a bit of a breather from your work, and most importantly, that you have a fulfilling new year ahead. Thanks again to Tom Kia for sharing his story with us today from Dubai. And thank you for listening to this final episode of the year, which also wraps up season six of this show. I wanted to send a special thank you to those who have been loyal listeners over the past year, and especially to you if you've tuned in since this show first launched in 2016. I'm looking forward to talking with you again in 2023 as we move on to season seven of the show. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl, and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu. Happy New Year. <laughs>